Hey everybody. My name is Andrew Krause and I co-founded InventRight with Stephen Key uh, 21 years ago and we're going to be talking about licensing your products today. Um, if somebody could type in yes that you can hear me, make sure that I know that the microphone is working. So I'd appreciate that. Somebody type in yes. I'll wait for that. There we go. Okay, great. Thanks, guys. So the, the nice thing about licensing, I always say this at the top of the hour because we always have some, some new folks. The nice thing about licensing is you get everything in one place. Um, you get the money because these companies are big, so they have unlimited money for a product that would sell well. And they have lines of credit and all that. And they're, they're big companies, right, most of them. You can license the smaller companies too. But So you get the money, and then you get the workforce, sales, marketing, manufacturing, advertising. They're all working for you, the way I like to look at it. No, yeah, your products, one product, and they're 80 product, product line, or 50 products, or 200 product, product line. I get that. But they're going to plug your product in that machine. And it really is a machine. You have all those different departments working on all these different products in different ways, whether it's the manufacturer's rep that's visiting the retailer and not just getting the product in the store, but keeping it there, whether it's the accounting department or, or sit or, or, um, or manufacturing, tweaking in the products, there's all these different departments. And it's just very difficult to launch a company and sell a product yourself. And you don't have to, when you license, you get the money, the workforce, and the distribution is the biggest thing. So if they're in 30,000 stores, boom, you're in 30,000 stores. So they're going to try, they're going to more or less do what they already do. So when you see, just as a random example, let's say it's a hardware product, and you see that they have products in Home Depot, Lowe's, Target, Walmart, Orchard Supply, well, they're going to pretty much try to get it in all those same places. They're going to do what they do. And they are, already have all those relationships. That's the beautiful thing about licensing. Um, so if you guys want to type in your questions, I'll answer them. What we're talking about today and what InventRight is all about, what the InventRight TV channel is all about, is about licensing. And so I've been doing these Q&As pretty much almost the entire time during the pandemic. Um, it's something that we decided we wanted to do for the community and you guys have been really great about saying nice things about um, the effort that I'm putting into it. So I appreciate it. It makes me want to keep doing it. <clears throat> um, if you haven't watched our other YouTube shows, I would watch those. We have over 600 YouTube shows. Um, gives you a chance to get to know us. Even more importantly, gets to know you can get to know the process. And yes, if you need more help, we do have coaching one-on-one uh, -on -one program and also a group coaching program, which you can find out about on inventright.com under the coaching menu. It's all there. So let's just jump in. Um, all about giving it up here and giving great answers to your questions. You guys have great questions. Um, hey, if you this one's from Jonathan. And by the way, if you type in your first name at the beginning of your question, if you can, so I can read your first name rather than uh, your screen name. Uh, hey, Jonathan says, hey, if you plan to contact DRTV companies first, Will they pay to perfect the prototype and manufacture and manufacturing standards? My prototypes works, just needs to be sturdy and higher quality. Thanks. I think that's good enough, Jonathan. Um, I have to say that the DRTV companies, some of them, they are a little lazy about pushing through, researching the manufacturing and or making a better prototype if necessary as opposed to standard consumer product companies that are in uh, Walmart, a Target, a Lowe's, a Home Depot, or Bed Bath & Beyond, or any major retailer. I always use those examples. There's plenty of the retailers, guys. But um, they're, they're, they want a little bit more. Um, I'd say my advice is just go fishing, see what the interest level is. And But sometimes it's more frequent that they want to put that back onto you. Um, but what they really want in the end is benefits. Because when you look at infomercials, it's all like the big deal. Like this is the major point of difference. They don't want things. You can license products with slight tweaks to standard consumer product companies. But the DRTV infomercial guys, they always want something with a little bit more sizzle. So don't think you can license this tiny little change, which you can quite often to other companies. But the infomercial guys want something more than that. So that's my best advice, Jonathan. 
Um, and so I, I would just go forward with what you have, Jonathan. I don't can't see what you have, but you said you have a prototype that works, just needs to be more sturdy and higher quality. And I think those are manufacturing research things that I would try to put on any DRTV company that shows interest. And it looks like you've been following me too, because I always say sometimes with some products, you'll be right for DRTV, but it'll also be right for standard consumer product companies. So it sounds like you're reaching first out to DRTV. But for a lot of products you guys are working on, you're not ever going to approach DRTV. So sometimes I think we talk too much about those guys. Um, Jeff said, hey, Andrew, you mentioned as a rule of thumb for estimating sales as one unit per location per week. And uh, how do you estimate sales from Amazon or other online-only outlets? You're right. Um, and we've talked about that in our shows as well. Um, if you see that they're in all the Walmarts and then all the Bed Bath Beyonds, you could estimate. You could go, well, if Walmart's not going to keep it in there. Or Bed Bath is not going to keep it in there if not selling one unit per week, let's say. So you could go, okay, they're in this many stores. And if they sell one unit per week, this is how many it would be. And it's a measure. You want to measure these types of things because then you ask them for literally 10 or 20% of that as minimum guarantees. So minimum guarantees are the minimum amount they need to pay you regardless of what they sell or if they've launched or anything. They don't want to pay you those if they're not launching the product. So, um, But you want to get an idea of what they can sell. I, had, I think I mentioned this in the last session. This uh, – student that said, oh, Walmart's, uh, they want to put it in Walmart, the company that showed interest. And he said, but when he dug down deeper, he realized, oh, no, we're just going to do a test on walmart.com. And then if it has legs, then maybe we'll do Walmart. Well, that's not the same commitment, is it? So don't assume because these companies are big, that they have big plans for your product. Sometimes you have medium to large size companies, not the really big, and they have bigger plans for your idea. And you'd rather go with the medium or large company as opposed to a really big company because their plan for your product is better. So um, don't just, don't, you can't make assumptions. A lot of, we teach our students to interview potential licensees. You're interviewing them more than they're interviewing you. That's one mistake that inventors that, that don't go through the invent right approach. They make a big mistake there. The mistake basically is to think that, well, you got interest from marketing managers, so they'll show you, they'll guide you. Oh, here's a process for licensing. No, they don't have a freaking process most of the time. And they don't know really how to move it forward. they got a lot of other things going on. So you need to be more responsible for kind of pushing it forward, nudging them in a very friendly way at the right time, holding back other times when they made it very clear what they're going to do, like getting some quotes overseas or what have you. Um, but do not think that they will guide you through a deal. If you do that, you won't close the vast majority of the deals you got interest on that you could have closed. That's a huge misperception. Um, so uh, let's see. Yeah, Clem, I didn't write their uh, full name, but Clem, Clemson, 1993. So Andrew, could you take a moment and discuss how your invent rights school works and discuss what the benefits are paying 3000 and joining it are. Well, we have one program that is the one-on-one -on -one coaching. That's three grand, and it's for six months. You can talk to your coach every week, email them anytime. It includes a negotiation coach that's on call five days a week. We Licensing deals don't happen on the weekend. It includes a sell sheet. includes a virtual prototype. It includes smart IP, which will help you with some software to help you follow your provisional so you don't need to pay 10 grand to an attorney. So it's a lot. For three grand, that is a deal. We've had many marketing people tell us, like, what's going like you guys don't really have much of any competition. Why do you guys offer it so cheap? You should be charging 10 grand, not three. But the origins of our company, it's because of the origins of our company. You know, um, I was running an inventors group, and Steve was a speaker, and you know, people would come back like once a month, we'd have a lecture, and be a successful inventor, patent attorney prototype guy like oh that guy was great or those speakers were great Andrew but I'd see people come back and they're in the same place a month later and Steven was a speaker and he talked about licensing and they were like I really get licensing when I when I hear this guy speak and people kept coming back to hear him speak and Steven said to me he said this is eons ago guys this is like 22 years ago we've been around for 21 years 
And Stephen said to me, look, I, I'm an inventor, but I've literally never hung around other inventors. Everybody's doing everything wrong. And I'm like, yeah, you know, we have great speakers like you and others every month, but it's not enough. And so the, the handholding needed to be what happened, the coaching. And we even did live seminars in Silicon Valley all day Saturday, all day Sunday. You guys are the greatest. I finally understand licensing from listening to you guys. And we let them come back for free. But I was checking in with them. They weren't doing licensing deals. And a lot of them weren't doing the work, even though most people would have stopped there. Like, well, everybody thinks we're great. But they weren't doing they weren't doing the work, most of them, that they really needed to. And they weren't doing deals. So I started being our first coach. And that's when people started licensing products. Now we have 10 coaches and a negotiation coach. We've had students in 65 countries. So flash forward 21 years. Um, so what you're really paying for, Clemson, the most important part, yeah, there's some good stuff there. Sell sheet, virtual prototype, software follow provisional, so you don't need a patent attorney. Negotiation coach, you don't need to worry about all the things they may say. You can just push it in front of companies. Most importantly, that coach that talks to you every single week and makes sure you're on track. So that's the one-on-one coaching. Um, the academy is for, and I'll get right back to Q&A, guys. Clemson asked. I won't ramble too long on this. The uh, group coaching is only about 900 bucks, but it's no email support, no phone support. You can't talk specifically about your invention because there's 20 other people there. You could talk generically about it, but you can ask questions and you can say, oh, this company sent me this email. I don't know what to say back. So you could, but you, you don't want to say the name of the person or the name of the company because you don't want to disclose that to the 20 other inventors that are in the group. So that's another way to get help. So those are the two methods. So hopefully that was helpful to everybody and helpful to you, Clemson. And I won't talk about that anymore. Uh, we, most of the sessions, if you guys have been attending, I don't, talk even about our coaching program i talk about our students so we're really cool about that sort of thing but um then people are like oh i didn't know you had a coaching program you never talk about it i'm like yeah because we don't want to be a bunch of sales schmucks you know um kevin says hi andrew um what are the risks of prior art so i know and i'll explain what prior art is and i'll answer his question here i know there are active patents out there close to my idea how different do i need to be could it stop a deal or do I have liability? So that's a lot of questions. So prior art, most people think of prior art as prior paths, but a true prior art search is anything that's in the marketplace that's been publicly disclosed or anything that's been disclosed in a magazine, a trade publication being sold in the marketplace or anything that's patented. So um, you want to make sure that your product makes sense when you study the marketplace, we always tell our students to go on to Google Images and Amazon, mostly Google Images, to look at the space that's out there. Now, you're not trying to prove this is the wrong mindset. And I will get to your question, Kevin, but I, I, this is really important. Oh, I'm going to try to prove there's nothing like my idea. There's nothing like it. And you're looking around at their stuff in that space. So let's say you got a uh, pancake spatula, okay? And you want to look at all the pancake spatulas. Well, you need to become an expert in that category. If you're just constantly thinking, I'm going to prove there's nothing like it and everything else sucks and mine's great, wrong attitude. You need to go, oh, well, there's five products over here. They have this kind of benefit and there's these ones over here and they tend to range from this price to this price. And yeah, I could see the benefit of that one. You know, it's kind of low price. And I see that one is offering the non-stick feature. It's not a real product, guys. I'm just making stuff up here. Um, and you need to acknowledge all that and then go, you know what? Now I'm an expert at pancake spatulas. My product's going to fit right here. Or I don't see anybody fulfilling this sort of need. There's a gap in the marketplace. So, and that is part of a prior art search, a market search. So, Kevin, to answer your question, I'm way, 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 way more concerned about that market search than I'm a patent search. It's very rare that other patents create a problem for our students. Very rare. Now, could it happen? Yes. But it's very rare. So when you look at other stuff in the marketplace, it tells you what is or isn't selling. It tells you a tremendous amount. When you see what somebody's patented, all it means is somebody threw a bunch of money at a patent attorney. And now that patent attorney's kids can go to college because they have enough money. That's all it really tells you. Because there are so many patents that are absolute garbage out there. And I've heard intellectual property experts say, and I think this is exaggerating a little too much, even for me, that 80% of patents are weak to junk. 
Now, so even companies do this. They, and I've said this many times on these live Q and A's. You, when you, when you get a first off, we teach our students to do a provisional patent on their own. But when you're doing a provisional patent on your own, or you have an attorney do it, but we always advise people to do a provisional patent on their own. Um, you should be thinking like, oh, here's my widget, and here's all my variations, workarounds, improvements. But here's the thing: most inventors, when they go to a patent attorney, they just go, here's my widget, patent it. Eh, it's, you, it's on you now. That's kind of the attitude. Wrong freaking attitude. You're wasting your money doing that. You should say, here's my widget, and here's the 10 variations or the five variations or the other ways it could be done. You, you, you can't just go, here it is. Because if there's five other ways of doing it, they're just as good as yours. Your patent is freaking useless. And here, so that's the fault of the inventor. But inventors are new to this, and they don't know that. And so that's your fault as an inventor if you go to an attorney and you don't give them all the variations. Now, to me, in my bias viewpoint, it's the attorney's fault when they don't push the inventor. And I think any good attorney will say, you need to give me the variations, workarounds, improvements. That's your job. You're the inventor. I'll do what I can. But you need to tell me the other ways, inventive ways that you can do this that might deliver the same exact benefit or something close to it. Now, you don't include a version that's half as good. That's not competition, but if it's 90% as good, even 70% as good, or just as good, but not the version you're pitching, you need to, to do that. So Kevin, getting back to your question, you need to understand the marketplace and you need to be very inventive when you file your provisional patent on your own or you do it with an attorney, okay? Um, and by the way, anything I share tonight should not be considered legal advice. Everything I share is just, for general educational purposes. My little disclaimer, seek the service of an attorney uh, before you take any action. Um, so, uh, so what you're saying is how different does it need to be? So now Kevin is concerned about what's less important, but it's still important. Um, I'm concerned about these other patents and I'm concerned that I might have some liability that I might be um, getting myself in trouble. Somebody may sue me. So, you know, a lot of times, to be honest with you, when you do a licensing deal, they want some sort of indemnification clause in there that says, and not always, but that says, like, you've done some searching into the best of your knowledge. You haven't found anything that we're going to be violating anybody else's patent. So, but getting ridiculous and worrying about that until you have a deal on the table, you know, really it shouldn't be something to worry about. But should you do a prior art search? Yes. We have videos of trainer students not just how to do a market search, but how to do a patent search. Really find what else is out there. And that's very important. So there is no percentage. And Kevin's saying, how different does it need to be? You need to look at the claims. And so you read through the claims and you're like, oh, that's what that claim's protecting. Well, that's just that hook. And my product doesn't need that hook. And that's not important. Okay, that's, that's not a problem. And you go through the claims and you see what they're protecting. There is no percentage. Oh, it has to be 20% different. Some people want that. That's, that's not what you need. You want to look at the claims and see if they have got a granted patent on any of those claims. Now, sometimes people, they, they don't notice that it's a published patent. When, you file, when somebody files a full patent, after 18 months, it goes public. And when you do searches, you'll find it. But that's not the granted patent. That's what they're trying to get. So people will see a patent that is pending still because it will take the patent office one to three years to get back to you. And then you have what's called office actions, which in layman's terms, I like to explain it as an argument between the patent examiner and your patent attorney on what they're going to give you and what they're not. And it's this little argument and debate they have and they figure it out. Um, but if you, but if you haven't, let's say it's been two years have passed, but it's been 18 months since you filed it after 18 months, it goes public. But it's just what you're trying to get, not what you actually got. So why I'm saying this is when you do patent searches, make sure it's an issued patent. It's not pending because I'll see people like, oh, I'm freaking out, Andrew. And then I'll look at it. I'm like, this isn't an issued patent. This is what they're trying to get, which almost nobody gets everything they're trying to get. Okay. So um, you need to do a market search, Kevin, and you need to do a patent. But forget the patent search completely at the beginning. Do a market search and go, Based on everything in the market, this product makes sense. It has benefits that I think people will want, and I think it's enough different than some of these other products. It doesn't have to be dramatically different. It could be somewhat similar, but it has this little extra something 
That can be fine too. So always look at it from a market perspective first. But then, do you want to do a patent search and see what you can pull up? Yes. Now, another like litmus test, and this is just a, a really crude way of seeing these. If you see like eight companies doing this type of product and, and you just have an improvement to that, my guess is there's no strong or any patent on it. So when you see eight companies doing more or less the same product, there's probably no intellectual property or it's weak or it's expired or what have you, right? And But that doesn't mean that you can't get a patent on the improvement. I will put a hinge on on the side so you can get a patent on that improvement. It might be public domain for anybody to do that product that's been out there forever and everybody's doing it and stuff, but nobody's protected that improvement. So you can get a patent a provisional on that improvement, see if there's interest, interest, and if there is, get the company to pay for the patent. They give you the money, give it to your attorney. Your attorney references that provisional on that date that you filed it. So we give our students software called Smart IP to file a provisional patent. And then you just pay the patent office fee of 75 bucks. And that's a hell of a lot better than spending 10 grand on a patent and not knowing if there's any interest. I've seen plenty of inventors come on board with us. They spent all that money on the patent. Fine, you did that. Don't do it again. And it's not a liability if you license it. But if you don't have licensing it, how many times are you going to send 10 grand on a patent every time you come up with an idea, right? So don't take that risk. File a provisional patent application. Um, uh, so, yes, before you to prevent your liability, Kevin, you might do a, a fair, decent job of patent search, but then they want the indemnification clause. You're going to hold them harmless for any patents you violate, which really isn't. They're going to sue the company, not you anyway. But um, do a more thorough search then. Um, but I have never had it happen. So these are the things that come up and things people worry about. I've never had it happen in 21 years. We've had students in over 65 countries. So could it be a problem? Yes. Has it ever been for our students? No. Um, so I think it's really important to give people's perspective, like, okay, that'd be a problem. And here is the solution, but I almost never see it or I never see it. Um, Hannah said, uh, I was wondering if you could explain more about a piggyback idea and how you go about licensing that. So I think, I, I think what you mean, I think you heard Stephen reference it, and I think occasionally I've said this in the past. I haven't used the word piggyback idea for a long time. But um, a good example for a complicated piggyback idea is Stephen's spin label, which he's moved on from that. He licensed the whole portfolio. He's no longer involved in that spin label product. But it was um, a label. Let's say this is a container and not a glass, like a vitamin bottle. And the label would spin and it would show the information below and above with the window. So you could add 75% more space to your container. So that's a piggyback idea because every time they sell different vitamins, different things, his product is not the main product, but it's adding to the product. So sometimes a piggyback idea is they're selling, you know, 400,000 of whatever it is. It doesn't have to be a packaging product like I just explained. And now you're going to piggyback on top of that. And so they're already selling 400,000 units a year, but you're giving a little extra something. You, you have to have a debate with the company and discussion with the company on what makes sense because they're already selling 400,000 units a year. And is it right for you to get the full royalty because their product already has this great benefit, you know, on every single unit? Maybe you go a little lower royalty. Um, so that's another example of a, a piggyback idea. Um, where it's a product that's already selling and you're adding on to it and then getting a royalty on every unit. Um, Ethan, hi Andrew, I've got a big toy idea which requires add-on packs. Is it better to license or manufacture? Well, we're all about licensing, so I'm biased, but licensing, I can explain why. I think I did at the top of the hour, but I don't think everybody was in here. Um, if you have lots of small ideas, could it get expensive filing a PPA each time before approaching companies? Not in my opinion. I think if you're in like the novelty business where you could literally just kind of like do a little sketch and um, they're okay with that, you could show it without a PPA. I'm not saying do that. little disclaimer, I'm always saying file a PPA. Our students have a lot of experience. And after a while, if they're in industries where you just need to churn out tons of ideas, you're making 
companies know you, you're just making a crude concept to see if they're interested. And they're like, oh, no. And then you didn't spend the 75 on a provisional. But for the vast majority of you, you should always file a provisional patent. It's only 75 bucks. Could I see if you get very prolific, if you're working on 50 ideas a year? I mean, let's let's see. But, you know, congratulations if you're there. Um, so let's see if it's say, $75 times 50. Let me get a little calculator here. So that would be $3,750 if you filed 50 provisionals a year at the micro entity rate of $75. Um, is that where most of you are right now? No. Um, could you go out in a little bit of a limb, especially with companies that you know after a period of time, after you've built a reputation in various industries and not file it? Yes, you could. I'm not advising you to do that. Um, but really, for most people, when you're new to this, filing a provisional gives you the warm and fuzzies. You're protected. It's a better bet. You're going to move forward, guns blazing, and not worrying about it as much. So I advise people to file a provisional. But in that scenario, I mean, you're a business person. You're doing 50 products a year with $3,750, you know, $75 times 50. Is that a lot of money for somebody who's doing 50 products a year? Probably not. If you're like going pro with it, it's like, why are you trying to save pennies? You know, but if you're in the novelty business and you make relationships with these companies and you feel comfortable with them, and you're creating a paper trail. We've had some of our students, you know, forego the provisional patent and go ahead and, and show it to them. But I'm not advising you to do that. Um, but if, if Ethan, if like you don't want to spend $75 for these three projects you're going to work on this year, you're being too cheap. And if you don't have that money, um, you should go get a job. And because if you can't afford $75, you can do licensing with next to no money, but you can't do it with no money. Then you're just too broke and you need to focus on getting your house. I'm not saying that's you, Ethan, at all. I'm just generally giving everybody advice. Um, that's you're, you're too thin financially. You need to get your house, your financial house in order where you're not that thin to work on projects. To me, if somebody doesn't have 200 bucks spent on a project, you shouldn't be working on a project. You should be working on getting a job or having a business that's bringing consistent income and then work on the project and you spend 200 bucks on that project, you know, because licensing, you can spend very little money on it and have a revenue of, you know, 10, 20, 50, 100, 200 K a year in royalties. So if that's not good enough for you that you can invest as little as 200 bucks or 300 bucks in some projects, you know, 75 bucks for provisional sell sheet virtual prototype. I, I, I can't make it any better than that because that's amazing. Um, I know Ethan, that wasn't the questions you're specifically asked. So those aren't directed towards you. Um, uh, another question, Matthew Bally. Hi, Andrew. Is it possible to license ideas without a PPA? If you have lots of small ideas, could it get expensive filing a PPA each time before approaching companies? I think I answered that. Was it somebody else that asked, asked that before? Uh, yeah, I don't know. Maybe that was the same one. Uh, Serena said, that was my question to Kevin. Thank you for, for asking. Okay, great. Um, okay, Mike said, can I legally write a provisional patent application for my wife or friend Thank you for all your awesome teaching and advice. Thank you, Mike. Um, you know, I, I, I don't. There are no formal requirements for filing a provisional patent. It could be done in common English. So I don't know one hundred percent for sure. I don't think there are any legal ramifications for writing a provisional patent application. But don't quote me on that. Make sure to look it up. I'm I'm going to ninety five percent sure that is not legally an issue now even if it was legally an issue you're doing it for your friend or um, spouse so no because they can write a provisional patent legally in common english and and do it you know use their smart ip software or do it on your own so i don't see if you've gotten their permission as to why how that could possibly ever get you in trouble um, you do not need to be a licensed attorney or patent agent to write a provisional patent. The whole point was that the layman can write it. So can one layman write it for another? And to the best of my knowledge, yes, but I'm 95% sure on that, not 100%.
And you'd think I would have gotten that question before, but I've literally never gotten that question asked that way in 21 years I've been doing this. And those are pretty rare. I'm not asked quite that way. Um, uh, okay, Spence says, Hi, Andrew, what is the first steps to licensing an idea to understand the steps for approaching companies? I've been quoted 1,500, I think that's euros, for a PPA and will take two weeks. Does this sound okay to you? Um, I don't see why you need to spend that money. Um, if you want to, go ahead, but you can utilize our smart IP software. You can buy that for, it comes with their coaching program, but you can also buy it separately, a la carte, for 99 bucks. And you use that, and then you just pay this patent office fee of 75 bucks. So what is that? $174 total, um, as opposed to 1,500, I think that's euros you put there. You can do it. Um, I have students that don't even have a GED, and they can do it. So you can do it. So to me, why would you spend 1,500 euros to have an attorney file it when you can do it yourself? Um, a lot of times when companies see the product, they're like, oh, you know, we like this and this, but we don't like this. And you're like, well, let me think on that. And then you go off, you make a fix, and you file another provisional. It's only another 75 bucks. And now you've got two provisionals. First one covered A and B. Now you take the same provisional, and then you add C because you came up with a solution to what their complaint was. And then you file that, and then you show them the solution. So, you know, a lot of time, another reason why Spence that you don't want to spend all that money on a patent or even lower price provisional, but still a fair amount of money is they might suggest some changes. And if you had filed it and then you became a student, and we had plenty of students that did that, they filed with a patent attorney. And I'm like, you don't need to go to the patent attorney again. Just file this new provisional on your own. Take what they gave you and then just add to it. Um, so, uh, Spence, I, I don't think you need to go to an attorney. I think you can do it yourself. Um, you can use our software if, if that's helpful, um, or you can do it yourself. And so people always think, oh, the first thing I want to do is go to an attorney. It's not. It's not the first. The first thing you do is you study the marketplace. So that was the other part of your question. What are the first steps, Spence? It's not where you are. Everybody thinks, oh, I go to a patent attorney. And then some patent attorneys, there's this weird kind of bullshit, part of my language, flow to it. Oh, we'll do a patent search. And they're like, well, we didn't find anything. And then the inventor falsely believes, well, now the product makes sense. Well, if you do a patent search and you didn't find anything, that doesn't mean the product's marketable or makes sense or is manufactured reasonable price. A market search will tell you that, but a patent search will not. So, but people go, oh, well, they did a patent search and it looks good. So now I'll move forward. You know, and invention scam companies do this and some patent attorneys do this. Um, so the patent search is not the first thing and filing a patent is not the first thing. Studying the marketplace, Spence. And I don't know if you showed up late, but we talked about um, using Google Images, not regular Google, but Google Images. You can do a regular Google search and then click on images and it'll show. And if you just get this visual representation of all the stuff in that space, so you want to study your micro category of your invention. So if you had a barbecue spatula, barbecue spatula. If you had a gardening trowel, study all the gardening trowels. And that's something that most people can do in like two to six hours. And people have anxiety because they're afraid of what they'll find. But the real world is the real world. And trust me, those companies that are in that space they know what's in that space. So why are you going to spend all this time doing this? And they're like, well, what about that other product? And you're like, what? I didn't know that existed. And you spent all that work, you know? So do that up front, Spence. That's your first step. And we, I'm sure we have some YouTube videos where we talk about that. And you can, if you decided, you could do our coaching and mentoring too. Um, and that would be money way, you get way more value out of your money than throwing that at a patent attorney because we help you with everything. Um, uh, Tanya, t Tanya, I have a quote or a slogan. How do you go about a copyright? Is that the best and only route? So, so you got two things there, a quote or a slogan. Okay. It's not a trademark. All right. So, you know, with the copyright, so the, there's the, in the U.S., there's the patent and trademark office, right? So the patent and trademark office is patent and trademarks. But the copyright the Copyright Office, that's the Library of Congress. So if you type in Library of Congress and copyright, you don't have to do that, but you can file a copyright. I think it's around 100 bucks these days, but copyright's automatic. When you give a speech in public, that's automatically copyrighted. If you want to put, take a little C and put a circle around, it's copyrighted. 
if you want to go the next level and you want to get a copyright on it, you know, you, you can do that. Um, but, you know, you have to figure out, Tanya, if it's really practical to license a quote or a slogan. You know, if it's something you got to how do you productize that? So if it's something fun and that could be put on a T-shirt, then, OK, makes sense. But don't think you're going to like not productize this and just keep anybody from saying like, what's what's your end game? You know, where do you want to go with it? You probably want to license it as some sort of product or put it on a coffee mug or a T-shirt or something like that. Um, and that is possible. Definitely. Um, you don't have to file the copyright, but it goes additional measure of protection. Copyright is automatic and you can just put a little C in the circle around it. Same thing when um, you do a trademark. Like if you notice up here, we've done this before right here. That's a trademark. We now have a registered trademark, but we went 18 years, 19 years without registering our trademark. If any, but InventRight was such a strong mark because we used it across state lines. We used it everywhere. It's all in our marketing materials. And so it's called a common law trademark. It didn't cost us anything. But then eventually we're like, okay, we've been around 21 years now, or it was about two years ago, only two and a half that we filed um, registered trademark. So, you know, there's the free TM, um, which is a common law trademark, which doesn't cost us anything. We just put TM. You can do the same thing with copyright. It's really, really important. You can go to the Library of Congress and you can file that. And I don't even remember what it is. I think it's around 100 bucks. But um, who is that that asked that? So I need to keep track of where I am with things. Um, yeah, well, Kevin said prior art is, is, is tough. You're right, it is. Because there's always prior art in a similar industry, and I feel like I can't find them all. Yeah, that's a good point, Kevin. We were talking earlier about prior art search. You'll never find it all. And that shouldn't freak you out. Um, but to not search at all and not to see what else is out there. And But when you're looking at all the other products out there, look and see if they have patents. See if one that says patent pending on the back of the package. Um, see if it's somewhere in the description. See what they're, they're saying and then look up those patents. Um, but a lot of the prior art, is done by people and companies that never sold a single one, never did anything with it. And the, the, pat, the patent is extremely weak. Um, or it doesn't, it's not weak, but it doesn't conflict with what you're trying to do. So, um, but you're right, you'll never find it all. You can get really obsessed about that. You'll never find it all. And it's rarely a problem. Could it be? Yeah, but it's... But I've never had an inventor sued by a company ever or even threatened to do it. Um, I've never seen that before. I'm sure it's happened to some inventors out there. But um, uh, Okay. Ty, we'll just call you Ty Knox. Hi, Andrew. Do I need to pay for a search and examination plus PPA? I thought the patent for a microentity is 75 and that price includes all. Please shed some light on this, please. Thank you. Well, you said please and thank you enough times. Now I got to answer your question. Um, yes, the the microentity fee. If you're earning under, I don't know what the dollar amount is now. They have a spreadsheet to see if you qualify as a microentity. I think it's under 150, 180 annual household income. But there's a spreadsheet where you can figure it out, um, and you then you qualify for 75. If not, it's 150. Um, but there's no examination. So the patent office doesn't even look at your provisional. You could scribble on a piece of paper with a crayon and they would accept it. As long as you paid your fee and you put your address and filled out the form properly, not what you're protecting, they will always 100% of the time accept it. So you're right. Um, I was referring to our software. We have software that will help you write it and write it correctly. And that is 99 bucks. So if there was any other fee I talked about, that's it. There's no examination. The examination with the PPA is, did you pay your money and did you put your address down, basically, and fill out the form? But it's they will never review or grant it. It's automatically granted 100% of the time because they don't review provisional patents. So you're, you're in the right thinking. It's only 75 bucks. You're right. Um, okay. Yeah, I went backwards a little bit. I, I said jump back. Sorry, because the, the text, but but it was a good good question. Um, 
Oh God, no, I lost it again. Okay, this is good. Hannah says, at what point in the interaction with the licensing company, well, there's no licensing company, but I'll explain that in a minute. Should, it's just your way you word it, it's fine, but uh, should you get a, pat, a patent attorney? Okay, um, never. Well, that's not true. I was trying to say that to, to get your attention. Um, so she's saying, well, what interaction with the licensing company? So you don't, it's not a licensing company. It's a manufacturer. So let's say, um, let's say you have this new product and uh, let's see, it's a, it's a new band for the Apple Watch. Okay, this is my Apple Watch, right? It's a new band. And you're, you're noticing that oh, Walmart and Target and other stores, they, they sell bands that you can use with the Apple Watch. Okay, so it's a manufacturer. So that manufacturer that has distribution in all the stores you want to get in, that's the one you're contacting. They're not a licensing company. They're called the licensee, and you're called the licensor. But if you want to just say they're the manufacturer, they're going to sell my idea to you, you can say that too. But technically, if you guys want to all learn, uh, they're the licensee, and you're the licensor as the inventor. It's very confusing at the beginning when you're getting familiar with this. So when you're interacting with the licensee or the manufacturer that you're trying to sell your idea to, and I'll correct myself there too, it's not sell, it's rent or lease, because if they don't perform, you get it back. So if they don't sell so much every quarter, the contract's going to say you get it back. So I never use the word sell, because if they don't perform, you get it back, so you're more renting or leasing it. So anyway, I went off on two tangents there that are hopefully beneficial from everybody. But you're saying, what point do you contact the patent attorney? So when people are with us, the licensing attorney is going to come before the patent attorney, more than likely, unless there's some major issues with intellectual property. But um, we get our students to where they're about 95% done with the deal. And we say, look, before you sign this, have a licensing attorney go over it for an hour or two. Just dot the I's across these. We save our students a tremendous amount of money by not having to use a licensing attorney until the very end. But also, more importantly, it's not about saving money. It's about them not killing the deal. Licensing attorneys try to rack up billable hours. They nitpick it to death. They piss the company off. Like if, if every time one of our students got initial interest, first interest, and we said, oh, just call a licensing attorney, they would kill 80% of the deals that our – this isn't a solid statistic, guys, because I've never played with this, nor would I ever want to play with this to find this out. But they would kill 80% of the deals that our licensing coach, Paul, helps them close because he takes a much more level-headed approach. And because there's a lot of stuff you need to talk about before you even get to the contract. Um, and then when we do the contract, we have a certain way of going about it. We train our students to do it so they can get deals to 95% done. And they only reach out to a licensing attorney when a deal is more or less done. Because what that does, it lets you license the rest of your life. So because that can get expensive. A licensing attorney can charge two, three, four dollars an hour. You know, and you only want to really talk to them once the deal is done. Um, but you know, when you're with us, we guide you, and then you see how we've done it, and then you can do it yourself in the future. So now I'll finally get to, to, um, to God, now I'm trying to remember, see, they jump around. I'm trying to get back to that question. I thought it was Kevin. Here we go. No, it wasn't Kevin. So anyway, the inventor's question was, when do I reach out to a patent attorney? So you may never. The company may be like, you say, oh, you, you're interested in doing patents on this? They're like, we don't care about patents. You can do them if you want. We'll still pay you the royalty. So we always make the contracts not dependent on a patent if they don't have to be. Sometimes they insist on it. A lot of times they don't. So you might not contact the patent attorney at all. You did a provisional, and they're willing to put in the contract because they're going to pay you regardless. That rocks. You know, Don't think that every company files a patent for every product they work on. Now, if they want to, great. Now we can show you how to negotiate with them to give you an advance or an advance on royalties. Advance on royalties would mean that they're going to give you the eight grand to, to give to your attorney. Your attorney is going to file a patent and then reference the provisional. Okay, But that first 8000 comes in royalties, they're going to keep. Now, the patent's always in your name. Or it might just be in advance. You know, they, might, they might just pay for it. You know, It's all what you can negotiate. right? So in that case that's when you'd be reaching out to a patent attorney. Um, also, if there's a lot of details about the patent that are really important and there's a lot of points to argue about, you might reach out to a patent attorney. They don't like to give patentability evaluations, 
oh, no, no, my patent attorney said I can get some strong claims um, here and here, or you just say it generically. So there might be other reasons to reach out. But for the most part, when the deal is done is when you're going to reach out. Um, or if there are intellectual property debates or issues, then might make sense too. Okay. Uh, so sorry. Let's see. It just jumped up on me and now I'm losing track of where I am here. So I'm just going to start from the beginning and page down again. Uh, okay. Uh, so we got about 13 minutes left. Emily says, my product has been sold publicly since 2018. Do I still need to file a provisional patent? Well, this is going to be very educational for Emily and everybody else that hasn't been selling their products, which is a good portion of our audience, I think. Um, so for that, Emily, if you've never filed anything on it, you can never get a patent on that same product that was publicly disclosed ever again. It's too late. So there's something called a one-year on-bar rule that once the product has been publicly disclosed for more than a year, if you didn't file a provisional or patent on it, you're toast. So you can never get a patent on that, Emily. Now, don't freak out about that. Um, let's say it's been selling well, and this is a way you can kind of trick your potential licensing, but not really trick, it's honest. Um, you could still file a provisional. Let's say this is the product you've been selling. Okay, let's say this pencil is the product. This is the great product you've been selling since 2018. But you add something to it. You add this really cool eraser or something else. You can legally say patent pending, file a provisional, and you can legally say patent, for, patent pending for an entire year. Remember what I said that all companies aren't obsessed about patents? And so if you're like, I'm tired of selling this thing, and maybe you're successful or maybe you're not, and I know a big company can do better than I can. You should still try to license it, Emily. Don't worry that I said, which is true, it's been publicly disclosed more than a year, you can never get a patent on that, which is why you guys should not publicly disclose your inventions. Um, because it starts that one-year on-bar rule from ticking. It, always file a provisional and privately show it to companies. But in Emily's case, it was fine. You know, that was her, she was selling it publicly. That was her thing. And now she's interested in licensing. So you can still say patent pending with a provisional Emily and, and give that perceived protection. You can say, and you'll say patent pending on the sell sheet. So I would still move forward, Emily. I wouldn't be too concerned about it. But be aware, everybody, that when you make that public disclosure, you start those timelines from ticking, you know. Um, Uh, Waleed said, hi, Andrew, can I license? Okay. I don't know what your earlier question was, Waleed. It's like continuing. Okay, here. Hi, Andrew, is it beneficial to refile the PPA for the same idea before ending the first one? No, it can be filed at any time to bypass the one year before public disclosure. So privately, it's really... The vast majority of attorneys believe that, or a large portion of attorneys, a better way of putting it, believe that with the American Vince Act, privately showing it for license is not considered public disclosure. Could somebody have millions and millions of dollars be made with your product debate that? Yes, I think so. But it's not the same as public disclosure. You're privately showing it for license. And I've talked to attorneys that believe it's kind of a gray area. So whether you file your second provisional, um, Waleed, uh, before the first one, they're not connected in any way, shape, or form. So it doesn't matter. But you could file the same provisional again and get another year from that new provisional date. Um, but uh, it there is a somewhat of a debate. Have I ever seen it bite an inventor in the butt? No. Could it? Yes. Only if insane amounts of money are being made, in my opinion. Um, so, but again, everything I share with you tonight is not legal advice. Our students do that all the time. So usually it's students that are new because our students that once they get familiar, they don't file provisionals till the week before they're ready to start calling. They'll know if the idea has legs in three or four months. Okay, it might linger to eight months. It's never going to linger more than that. So you never need the year. You know, but other inventors, they get excited about the provisional. They file it and then the time runs out. And then sometimes patent attorneys will take advantage of that and go, well, if you want to preserve your filing date, which is accurate, you need to file a full utility. Give me the eight or 10 grand or whatever it is. And it's not true. They don't tell them like, 
well, look, you didn't make any public disclosures, just file it again. But they want to get the eight or 10 grand out of you. So they do that. Um, talking a lot about patents tonight. Uh, let's see. Billy said, the smart IP makes it completely possible to write it on your own. So I think it sounds like Billy might have used it. Um, it's great software we developed with patent attorney Gene Quinn. It's very affordable. Um, but realize one thing that was not fully covered in that software is my tip, which I give all the time. Include 80% of filing a good provisional, thinking about all the variations and workarounds improvements, the other versions of it, and including it in there. If you do that, plus you use that software, you'll be rocking it, um, providing you follow the instructions. Uh, Okay. Dar Darren said, what, when going on to the TV show Shark Tank, uh, what percentage of my product's company should I present available to all of the investors? I'm not a big fan. I, I, I used to like watching that show. It's entertaining TV. Do they get the money? Don't they get the money? But Darren, what we're talking about here tonight is a lot sexier in real life than Shark Tank. Shark Tank makes for good TV. It's about TV. It's about finding an audience. They can have advertisers and make money off of advertising. That's what TV is about, entertainment. That TV show, it's really sad when people think their only way they can bring a product to market is going on a stupid TV show. That's pretty ridiculous. Um, so when you license, when you go on that show, you get the money, but you have to start a one product, one skew company from scratch. Don't think that all these retailers are going to love these sharks. Some of them could give a rat's ass about these sharks. Or, oh, you're on TV. Well, okay. But it's two weeks later. Everybody's forgotten about it. You know, um, some of them, they'll do the, 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 they'll care. Like, oh, it says as seen on Shark Tank or something. Okay, that's fair enough. But when you license, you get the money, you get the workforce, and you get the distribution. When you go on the show, you don't get all that. You get money. And they're going to put the screws to you. You've got to do all the work so you don't get all the workforce. And they don't have existing distribution. They might have a few relationships, but they don't have that manufacturer. When you license to a big company that have 80 products, their manufacturer's rep, their salesperson is constantly calling on that buyer because they got so many products in that store. You don't have that when you go on Shark Tank. They're not going to give whoever in your company or you the FaceTime they're going to give to a company that has 12 products in their store. So it's way more attractive to do a licensing deal than to get on Shark Tank. Now, with that said, if you want to run your own business and want to get funding, that can be pretty much a bizarro, weird way of getting that money. Is it a potential way of doing it? Yeah. Is it a shot in the dark? Yes. Um, do some people try to get on that show just to get some free publicity to show their product? Yes, they're kind of on to that, but that can work. Um, so am I completely against Anybody going on Shark Tank? No. Do I feel sorry for people that think it's the only way to get their product out there? Yes. Um, do I feel sorry for people that don't realize they're being used by that show for entertainment? Yes. If people know they're being used and understand that, then that's fine. It's like, okay, I'll use you. You use me. And you figure out how you can use each other. Great. We both get something out of it. I have no problem with that. I used to watch that show. I can't watch it. It hurts It hurts in every way to watch that show. Um, and, you know, it, it's entertaining when people get on there and say stupid stuff, right? And it's always that, do you get the money or don't you get the money? It makes for great TV. Steve and I have been candidates for several TV shows in the Hollywood people. It always fell through. But I literally, I think at this point, four or five times over our 21 years, um, and most of them don't end up even pitching it a couple times they did, but I, I don't know if we can figure out how to make licensing as interesting as do you get the money or don't you get the money? Um, if you guys have an angle where you think a, a, for a licensing show or it would work this way for the show and it'd be really intriguing for the show, we could actually help people. That would be great. But, um, not a big fan of shark tank. I met Damon at the licensing expo. I think he was there. He seemed like a cool guy. Um, haven't met anybody else on there. Um, I think um, one of the women on there, I think 
endorse Stephen's book or what have you. So I'm not totally against the show, but people have no idea what they're getting themselves into when they go on that show. So make sure you get out of what you need and you're not just being used. And, you know, it's they're like, well, it's a TV show. You got to know that. You just got to know that. Um, uh, let's see. So many questions about PPAs. Let's move on to something else. For the, um, oh, here's Kevin. What are your thoughts on online submission portals, especially when they ask for uh, very specific items like your filing date and application number? Do you run away screaming or hold out for a person? Um, no, I'm not really worried about that. So realize when they ask you for certain things on these forms, on a submission form, on a company that says they're open to ideas, you don't have to give it to them. Like if it asks for an application number, I just write the words patent pending, right? And write patent pending. And if it accepts letters instead of numbers, just be happy with that. And, and uh, you don't have to give the application number and all that. And show them you have an opportunity there. Make sure they see your sell sheet. Sometimes these, I'll give you a really good tip, guys. Sometimes the, to me, when a website, a company has a form where you can submit your idea, it doesn't have a place where you can upload or even suggest link to a YouTube video or upload a sell sheet. That's freaking ridiculous. It's like describe your product. Really? A written description? Are you kidding me? Stupid. Don't even ever do that. So you need to make a sell sheet or make a video. So in that text field where they're saying describe your product, um, what I would recommend doing is using Dropbox. So, so you have your sell sheet. It should always be in PDF format. That's your, or, or your link to a YouTube video. If it's a link to a YouTube video, you always make it unlisted. So literally nobody except people you give the link can see it. Just paste that link in there and just say product is very clear. The benefits of the product are very clear in the 60-second video. Send a link to the YouTube video. Now, if it's a sell sheet, a PDF, you want to upload that to Dropbox. Dropbox is free, okay? And you upload it to Dropbox and you share the link. You know, this sell sheet, you're going you're gonna to understand it in 30 seconds or less. Here's the link. And they click on the link, and it takes them to Dropbox, and they can see the sell sheet. Don't write a bunch of stuff. It's just That's like explaining how to tie your shoelaces over the phone. It's freaking stupid. And I, part of me is like, who created this form? Like, why did they think that was a good idea? It, either they're not interested um, and that's the way of filtering it out. And they're looking at these ridiculous descriptions of things, filtering out, take the opportunity just to shove it in their face. And they didn't tell you they couldn't do it. So you just put it there, let them click on it, let them see the sell sheet because that will sell the benefit of the product. You writing it out with words without any pictures, ridiculous, never do it. Okay. Now there was one company recently that I told me that they like to see it written what the product is generally to say, oh, we don't do products in that area. But if you looked at their product line, you're like, if it's their product line, just go ahead and send them a sell sheet or video. You know, now the problem is, in their defense, some people just spam these companies. It's like you didn't even look at the company's product line. What are you doing? You're wasting their time. You're sending them a bicycle idea when they sell mattresses. That's a ridiculous example, but there's you know other you gotta look at the product line, goes this makes sense. Like if you look at their product line, they don't sell a single electronic product. And you're pitching an electronic product. Why? You're, you know, maybe you can make the exception sometimes, but respect their time. And they might have set it up that way because so many inventors don't respect their time. But and when they ask you for the patent number, don't give it, right? Patent pending. You know? And if you need, if it only works with a certain amount of numbers, which I've never seen one that does it, just put zero, 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 zero. But you want them to see your marketing piece. They're not gonna yell at you. Or go, well, you didn't follow our rules. They aren't. They'd be, if they're intrigued by the marketing piece, which is all you want them to see, it's good enough. So I, I love that. Um, I forget who that was. That was, uh, I forget who, who asked that question. Kevin did. Kevin, thank you. That was a great question. It was nice. We got some new questions this time. Sometimes these Q&As, it's like the same stuff over and over. Um, but if that helps, helps you guys, it's great. If you guys need more help, you can go to InventRight and click on coaching, learn more about our coaching programs. Um, makes a world of difference to have a coach guiding you through all of it. Um, I want to ask you guys to do me a favor. 
If you could get on, I think you can just, if you can like this video and if you can click the subscribe button, um, we want to hit 80,000 subscribers. I think we're about 40,000 or so right now this year. And so if you guys can subscribe, if you're like, well, I never subscribed to anything, just subscribe. You won't get like spam emails or anything like that. It just puts one more on our subscription list. It helps us tremendously. So if you found my help over the last hour, if you found my answers helpful, please help me out. Like our videos when you watch them. And more importantly, click subscribe so we can try to get to our 80,000 subscribers by the end of the year. That's our goal. I know your goal is to license products. And our goal is, one of our goals is to get 80,000 subscribers. So please help us out that way. And um, I remind you guys, take care, keep inventing. I am going to be coming back next Monday. I don't know how long we'll continue to do these Monday Q&As. I don't have a date in mind right now. We're going to stop. So take advantage of them while they're around. And I will be back next Monday. So we'll see you next Monday. See you guys. Bye.